This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bitesize Bio webinar, which today is sponsored by TCAN. TCAN is a leading global provider of automated laboratory instruments and solutions. Their systems and components help people working in clinical diagnostics, basic and translational research, and drug discovery bring their science to life. In particular, they develop, produce, market, and support automated workflow solutions that empower laboratories to achieve more. Today's presentation is titled, How to Ensure Your Cell-Based Assays Are Reproducible, and is being presented by Dr. Victoria Dornina from Manchester Metropolitan University. Victoria Dornina graduated from Belarusian State University in Minsk, Belarus. Then as a recipient of the Darwin Trust Scholarship, she did her PhD at the University of Edinburgh in the UK under the supervision of Professor Noreen Murray. After that, Victoria worked as a postdoc in several Russell Group universities in the molecular and cellular biology of protein translation. Currently, she's a technical officer at the Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen. I'll put them to Victoria at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly slash reproducible cell assays. That's bit.ly slash reproducible cell assays, all one word, lowercase. So now over to you, Victoria, for the presentation. Thank you, Amanda. Uh, and thank you everybody who is joining us today or who will be listening to the recording. So uh, today I will be talking to you about your cells and how you can make uh, more about, uh, how can you make more from them. So uh, why use cells uh, instead of in vitro systems? Uh, cell is a natural homeostatic system and it's difficult to recapitulate in the in vitro. Uh, cell culture behaves as a population and this is more relevant to the organism. In fact, uh, the in vitro assays with enzymes were great for the previous stages of development of biological science when it wasn't possible to capture details of uh, cells uh, behavior uh, cells behavior so even in the industry cell-based assays are beginning to replace uh, isolated target-based assays and this is because uh, you can monitor the native environment of the target protein in cells which is as you know very different from what you can have in vitro. And uh, cell cultures are better recapitulate uh, and predict in vivo outcomes. Uh, as you know, the most commonly used cells are immortalized cell lines, which are made out of uh, cancer cells. And this is because of the advantages they present. Uh, they are relatively easy to work with. You can 
uh, maintain uh, or scale up to large numbers. And there are classic cell lines which were in uh, circulation for tens of years. So there is a great deal of literature about them. And the results are reproducible and comparable across the land. Also, and this will be important for uh, uh, second, uh, second part of my presentation, it's easy to use in high throughput analysis. Uh, but uh, the more we work with cells and the more we want to understand what is going in the organism rather than in vitro models, the more we see that immortalized cell lines are not ideal because the immortalization itself uh, leads to changes in karyotype cell cycle and other processes. And also there is an ongoing problem of contamination and mislabeling of the so-called classical cell lines. So as uh, long ago as 1974, uh, there was a report that many mammalian cell lines uh, were overgrown by the first, uh, the mother of all cell lines, uh, HeLa. And this has happened because HeLa is so robust and it's able to survive even, even out of the in vitro environment. So it's very easy. And because it grows so quickly, it just overgrows the cells that you were supposed to be having. But people were watching out for bacterial infection, for fungal infection in cell culture, and nobody expected uh, their cell culture to be replaced by something else. And uh, you will think that because it was discovered in 1974 that everybody would know about it, but uh, I found an article in 2014 where people were working with a cell line and they discovered that it's a healer. And this is not uh, all the extent of the problem because it happens not only with HeLa, which you can easily identify, especially if your cell line is completely different from it. But what happens again and again in vitro is that the cell cultures after establishing they're overgrown by more aggressive lines. Uh, for example, thyroid lines were actually melanoma cells and prostate tissue was bladder cancer. And this happens because of the, as I said, population nature. The cancer cells itself are selected uh, by natural selection as more aggressive and more adaptable to the environment. And if you have a competition between slow growing cells and fast growing cells, obviously uh, the second one will take over. So what you can do about it when you start working with any cell line, if it, even if it's not something left by a previous uh, PhD student with illegible handwriting, it's always a good idea to check your cell lines that it is what it says on the tin. And here you can use short tandem repeat typing, which is a PCR on the chromosomes of uh, your cell line and uh, they have unique fingerprints. Uh, American type 
Culture Collection, which is a non-profit organization, maintains the uh, database of STR for many cell lines, and they can also do it for you. Uh, for example, on the figure, you can see fingerprints of different uh, cell lines, and you can see that they're quite distinctive uh, if your logo was switched for SV480, you will immediately see it. Uh, also, uh, there is cell line authentication committee website, and it contains list of contaminated lines and the last list uh, was published in 2016, so it's relatively up to date. Uh, there is also a resource called Cellosaurus, and it's provided by Swiss Institute of Bioinformatics. Uh, summarizing, I can say that the first thing, if you want your results to be publishable, is to make sure that you are working with uh, specific cell line and you have proof of it because more and more journals are starting to require uh, authentica authentication from the authors in order uh, of the papers to be published. So we talked about immortalized cell lines. Uh, there is also primary cells uh, which are isolated from donors and they're more physiologically relevant because uh, they're not cancerous. In many cases, therefore, they have indigenous pathways. And But uh, here lies a limitation as well, because you can only, only isolate a limited cell number per batch, and there will be a donor-per-donor -donor variation uh, because they're not transformed. Uh, because because they're not cancer cells, uh, they have limited lifespan, and uh, because of that, they're not very good to use in high throughput assays. Also, they undergo phenotypic drift. And the last uh, type of the cells, cell cultures which you can use are stem cell derived. Uh, they are physiologically relevant and you can scale them up and also you can gain access to rare cell type. But as they relatively new, there is not so much literature so far on them as on immortalized and primary cells. And uh, they also undergo phenotypic drift. What is phenotypic drift? And this is directly relevant to the reproducibility of your experiment. Phenotypic drift is the change in the phenotype of cell uh, as a result to the adaptation to cell culture conditions. Uh, because we have a population, as I, as I said, it, it's what happened everywhere, that the cells that are better adapted to the condition of the cell culture itself will outgrow the normal heterogeneity of the population. Uh, here's an example of uh, phenotypic drift of, uh, this is a phy phylogenetic tree, and in red you can see the genotype of the parental cells, 
primary cells isolated from a patient. And then in uh, shades of green and blue, uh, you can see the descendants. So as you can see during the cultivation, the cells changed from the genetic point of view uh, by a great deal. And this happened even when just one cell was selected. Uh, population adapts to the condition and uh, the mutations are visible. So now we talked about the cell lines itself, what types of cell lines are there, what you can use, what advantages, disadvantages, but irrespective of uh, the type of cell lines that you use, there are some conditions which will determine uh, reproducibility of your experiments. And this, here's a list of main sources of bias in the cell-based assays. First of all, and everybody probably knows that, but still, plastic in media should be as uniform as possible. Also, main, many types of plastic and uh, media are applicable to your situation. Uh, they vary not only between the companies, but within uh, the marked uh, batches itself. So that's why when you buy chemicals, you can see that it's batch something something. Because uh, although it's all within the parameters, there will be some subtle changes which would could be significant for your experiments. It's not a good idea to switch between different companies because something is on sale. Uh, the next source of bias is uh, taking your cells out of the incubator where uh, ideal humidity and carbon dioxide concentration is maintained, then taking them to the bench, doing something with them, and then putting them back. Every time you do that, uh, you shock the cells and there is a quite a significant, depending on where you are in the world, but there is a significant temperature variation of the temperature in the lab. That's why sometimes you do something uh, in January and it works and then you try to repeat it in July and it doesn't. This may be the external conditions which influence your results. So if you have a possibility to do your assays in a stable controlled temperature and humidity environment, it's better to do that, especially for the sensitive uh, time-lapse lapse experiment and so on. So there is also time as experiment, well, uh, obviously nobody wants to work 24 hours straight, but uh, it creates a gap. Uh, so you need to, again, maybe use systems which allow you to fill in the gaps, which automatically uh, record what cells do. And also each manipulation with your cell culture increases chances of contamination. Therefore, it's better to plan your experiments in such a way that you minimize manipulation. For example, adding several compounds uh, at the same time. 
We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Another source of, uh, of bias is cell culture growth phase, which is usually neglected. Uh, you need to make sure that the cells that you use are in the same phase of growth. And this is a classical S-curve uh, where you start uh, with inoculation and then the cells are going in the log phase where they divide and then you can subculture them and then they go into the late uh, log phase and then they die. And obviously the processes in the cells will be quite different depending on in what stage they are, or whether it's early logarithmic phase and the cells cover only 20% of your plastic, or uh, they're starting to form a second layer. To be precise and to reproduce your results, you need to try and use cells in the same phase of the population growth. And this is not relevant only to people who work with cell cycle for example but it's uh, relevant for most of the biological processes in cell culture uh, now there is a possibility of uh, high content screening what is high content screening uh, you probably heard of high throughput techniques, which is screening of uh, chemical compound libraries uh, to get candidates for therapeutic agents. But that was done uh, with in vitro system to simplify. Now there is a possibility to use cells. Uh, and we've already talked why cells are better than uh, more simple in vitro systems. So high content screening combines uh, high throughput techniques and ability of uh, cellular imaging. Basically, you have your uh, high throughput station or people sometimes call the robot and then you can measure a lot of parameters in it at the same time and then you can analyze them and get a lot of more data from one experiment. You can measure cell components such as RNA, protein, metabolites, uh, physical properties of cells. You can measure cell shape if there is a chemotaxis, uh, cytoskeleton, and you can measure subcellular localization of certain organelles, proteins as well. So uh, the main message for high content screening and you probably use some or all of these metals already in, in, the, uh, in your lab. And if you do, you may think of how can you use uh, the equipment which you already have uh, to maximize the amount of information you can get out of, of your cells. Uh, so for high content screening, you can use uh, antibodies and here I have a link to a database of antibodies with proven record in cellular assays. You can use RNAi screening 
and uh, the old and non-turvy bodies cell-based report Jesus assays, uh, beta-gal cut luciferase and fluorescent protein in multiple color variants. Uh, don't be alarmed by that. I'm not going to go through all the things which I have on the slide. I just leave it for you to look at it and decide which uh, assay tool is better for you. So we've been through what this, uh, a little bit of the historical part, which is uh, establishment of cell lines and immortalized cell lines. And now the uh, primary cell cultures and the stem cell derived cultures. Uh, what is happening at the moment at large? So I, sorry, there's a mistake on the slide, is cryopreserved cells and the ultra high throughput screening, uh, 3D culture and microfluidics. Cryopreserved cells. Uh, most of people who work in cellular biology only use cryopreservation for one thing, uh, to, freeze, to freeze the cells, to use them for future subculture and have it as a stock. But for many years, people in reproductive biology uh, were developing techniques which allow you to expand the scope of cryopreservation experiments. So, uh, and most of you would know as well that uh, not only uh, individual cells can be frozen, but tissues as well. So, what if you can achieve a control rate of freezing and uh, find out what cryopreservant is better for your cell type? You can use this to overcome some of the problems which are created by uh low numbers of cells that cells of you have uh or just to make your life easier for example when you transfect your cells you don't need to use them all at once if you can freeze them and then you can defrost them in good conditions they will all be alive and ready for your assay whenever you have it so and again it works on a number of cells uh for example uh skin blood products stem cells again so this is applicable to stem derived cells and it can be used in general tissue regeneration on the picture you can see some examples of the placental tissue which was frozen and then defrosted and you can see that virtually all of it is intact and uh can be used as the fresh tissue. So what is ultra high throughput screening? We already talked about high throughput screening when you test lots and lots of compounds or for example, lots and lots of different concentration of one compound. Uh, it's the same, but you can scale it up and do it much quicker. So these cells fit into high throughput station and there is a range of plate which allows you to choose what volume 
of your cell culture you would use. Uh, they vary from 400 wells to almost three and a half thousand wells. And uh, the plates with three and a half thousand wells takes a sample of 200 cells, which would solve your problem if you have some sort of rare cell type, which is not easily reproducible. Uh, 200 cells may sound nothing to a cell culture spe specialist who is used to dealing with uh, millions of cells at one time. But as I said, because it's a population, uh, each cell is an individual system and uh, 200 is enough to average the population reaction to a certain, a certain stimuli. Uh, also, uh, we were talking mostly about 2D culture, but just as uh, immortalized cells are being more and more replaced by other types of cell cultures, uh, more physiologically relevant, the 2D culture, the, which we use uh, the normal one where cells grow in monolayer, in being replaced by 3D culture. 2D culture has, uh, irrespective of whether it is mortalized cells or primary culture, just because of, because of the way we are using it, it has changed in comparison with the cells which are in the organism, because if you think of it, with very exceptions, they're all in 3D environment and they're being supported by external cellular matrix. So 2D cultures have changes in cytoskeleton and in gene expression, uh, general gene expression. Again, it's not only about cytoskeleton and cell cycle. Also, receptors and adhesion molecules are concentrated on the surface attached to the plastic in 2D cultures as opposed to the uh, even distribution across the whole surface if you have a 3D culture. And 2D cells show increased proliferation and reduced differentiation. Uh, due to limited cell, cell contacts. If you think about it, this is what causes phenotypic drift as well. Not only the synthetic conditions of the media, but if we select for the cells which are better of proliferating, and at the, same, at the same time, we select to concern like cells that just divide uncontrollably and replace the natural environment. Also, these cells in 2D culture have increased susceptibility to therapeutic agent. Uh, this was found out again and again, but this is also true for any uh, experiments that you do in cell cultures. So when you calculate concentration and then you try to translate your findings to the live organisms, uh, it very often is misleading. Uh, here's an example how 2D cell differs from 3D. And you can see that if you look at the above uh, on a cell which is flat on the surface and 3D cell which is in solution, uh, they look the same. However, if you have a side view, the 
2 d the 2d culture self will be flattened and the 3d has the same shape so you can imagine the rearrangement of cytoskeleton and all the related processes which would be uh, chromosome movement and the cytosis and so on uh, 3d culture uh, can be scaffold free where you don't need to add anything to it you just need to give it uh, an environment which allows formation of clumps of cells rather than single layers of cells and you can also provide scaffold and scaffold can be synthetic or natural uh, this is an example of uh, 3d culture so first uh, type of culture where you create so-called hanging drop where you suspend cells in a drop of culture media and then you overturn it and uh, maintain the humidity by putting more of uh, cell culture, culture medium and you can see that the cells they will form clumps in the drops then uh, so this is the first the first one is uh, scaffold free this is a scaffold uh, where you provide external support to it and uh, the last type is a solid scaffold where you uh, apply your cell culture to the scaffold and they redistribute redistribute uh, around the scaffold and they grow supported so we can also combine 3d culture and high content screening first you uh, create your 3d culture then you apply one of the uh, regions i talked before for example antibodies and then you put it into a chip and then you do your assay there is also a popular a development field of microfluidics uh, microfluidics in biology it's use of the devices that allow cultivation of uh, biological samples in small volumes of micrometers to femtometers uh, as with ultra high throughput screening this allows to reduce the number of cells which you need for the experiments and then monitor the reaction of individual cells so this is an example of uh, combination of microfluidics and 3d culture also obviously you don't need 3d culture to use microfluidics so this is a type of microfluidics where the uh, medium is pumped through the device and then in uh, c and d you can you can see that uh, you add the culture to the medium and then uh, you can monitor well no not you uh, your workstation will monitor uh, cell behavior and up to each individual cell and for example uh, GFP uh, GFP concentration 
and then it automatically registers and collects the data and then you can analyze the data uh, already a lot of uh, tissue models and cancer models which are use both microfluidics and 3d culture were developed right so let's summarize what we talked about uh there is a shift from immortalized cell lines to primary cell cultures and stem cell derived cell lines because of uh, poor physiological relevance of immortalized cells uh, this caused not only by uh, the simplification of the model in immortalized cells but by frequent contamination on classic cell lines uh, primary cultures and stem cell cultures also undergo a similar phenotypic shift adapting to culturing conditions where you start with one phenotype and gradually it can change all unpredictably uh, to decrease the variation in the result of your experiments it's important to maintain uniform conditions during assays avoiding changes in culture media plastic ph and temperature this you can achieve by automatization of the experiments. Usually uh, what happens is that you already have in the lab uh, some uh, robots or you have uh, other devices which could do uh, part of the job for you automatically. But in my experience, they're underused. Just look at them, play around with them, it's very possible that you will get a lot of more out of them. Cryopreserved cells uh, can be used for various applications. Again, it's an underused application. Please consider introducing them to your experiments. And uh, in my opinion, the future lies in high throughput experiments because as you know it's getting more and more difficult to publish and the journal demand more and more data to support your hypothesis that's where data can come from uh, also i would like to recommend you take blog uh, thank you for listening hello Thanks, Victoria. That was an excellent presentation. We have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So we've got two questions from um, Samuel. The first is, um, how many technical replicates should you need for a set to get reproducible results? Well, uh, you know, that's the gold standard is as, as many as possible. But in practice, you need at least three replicates that confirm your hypothesis, more or less, because, uh, you know, once is just a chance, two coincidences, and three is a trend. 
So at least three. So again, when people send uh, the data to the journals, the referees usually, when, when they see that something was reproduced only twice, they're very skeptical about it. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, because you want to make sure that you have a trend instead of just kind of a fluke, I suppose. And so, yes, I say, for example, you do experiment and everything is great. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you decide that you repeat it later. And then you come to it later. It's different time of the year. You've changed plastic, you changed your media. Maybe even in the worst case scenario, uh, you run out of the cell life you were using and you use something which is supposed to be the same, but maybe don't. And right. then your experiment is not reproducible. So, and you don't know what to do, what to do with the result. Therefore, it's better to, to do it several times, despite that it worked. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And then um, the second question is, for assays performed on 96 or 384 well plates, are the results from the edge or bottom of the plate accurate? Uh, it depends on the type of the assay, obviously. Uh, but again, if you if you see that the results are different, uh, you can try and use uh, wider plates uh, and mm -hmm. see. What so obviously, the uh, conditions will be different because at the edge of the plate you have sort of corner, and this will influence influence your result, obviously. Yeah. And then we have another question about um, microbial cultures. So you were talking about human cells primarily. Can the same principles be applied to microbial cultures? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, everything that, that I said about uh, maintaining the same conditions and uh, uniform conditions as soon as possible. And uh, as, as much as possible and uh, replicated your experiments as much as possible. It's all applicable to the microbial cells. And, uh, in fact, robots are used more and more in working with microbial cells such as yeast and algal cultures and the same with microfluidics. Obviously, the you wouldn't you wouldn't get that the three D culture because microbial cells in most yeah cases they don't just, yeah they don't uh, they don't they don't form structures mm -hmm. all the rare exceptions but um, everything else considering the condition is applicable. Okay, and then um, what are the trusted sources of new cultural cell lines? Sorry, uh, what? Sorry, so what, um, so we have a question about trusted sources. So what are some trusted sources of new cell culture lines? Oh, or of new cell yes. lines? Um, yes, I talked about the American uh, cell culture. Mm -hmm. You can see it in the screen. I hope it was the American type culture collection. Mm -hmm. uh, ATCC is a good source. And in general, the large uh, culture collections, uh, non-commercial or commercial, they usually 
usually more than just you know you freezer times thousand they right. do research on their cell lines they authenticate them they make sure every time they they passage them they make sure that it is what it says on the tin uh so if in doubt go to culture collections uh because it usually doesn't cost you very much but the mm -hmm. savings which you will get in not wasted uh and time which is irreplaceable uh, uh enormous oh yes yeah um being able to save time and know what you're working with is huge and yes then... i i know sorry sorry just i know okay. somebody who spent all her two-year postdoctoral fellowship working on some cell with some cell lines and then mm -hmm. they discovered that it wasn't what it was supposed to be basically oh, no. the fellowship was a oh no yes so they, they cannot publish the results because the results were not applicable to what they were supposed to be doing oh that sounds awful one was one of my worst nightmares from working in the lab. Um, and then we have kind of a fun question that looks like our last question. Um, you were talking about high throughput and automation. So it looks like this field of cellular biology is moving toward greater automation. Do you think that um, these algorithms and machines would um, replace the researcher completely? Oh, yes, the robots will come and take over. Uh, <laughs> No, I don't think so, because what you get out of this system is a large amount of raw data. Mm -hmm. And uh, even if your uh, computer program can analyze the output of high-throughput high screening, and it will show you that there are two populations uh, in your cells, for example, it's only a human mind that can propose a hypothesis why mm -hmm. it is uh, like that and then design future experiments. It's just what I see is the trend in, in the journal that demand more and more data. And obviously, if somebody is using uh, high throughput uh, mechanisms, right. they, will get, they will get more data. But uh, you still need a person to analyze them. That's true, because you need the, like you said, you need the person's brain to be able to design experiments and to, to be able to understand analyze what it. it is. Obviously, mm -hmm. you can you can see the effect, but what what it means and what to do about it, and that what happened uh, in many cases in industry when they thought that you know we have high through put experiment uh, we test 10,000 molecules on an in vitro system and then this is we will get 10 new blockbuster drugs but mm -hmm. that will not happen right because there are so many stages between the in vitro system and the organism by using cell cultures in this experiment instead of uh, simplified systems you cut several stages but you cannot cut everything out of it there's still uh, a lot of work that needs to be done for it to be relevant and this is applicable i keep talking about the 
drug discovery and, uh, industry, but I think it's applicable to uh, just basic uh, research. Mm -hmm. Uh, because, as you know, many of the experiments are not reproducible. Right. Uh, yeah, we have the reproducibility uh, uh, crisis. Yeah, so if we will be able to standardize the conditions, uh, there will be, and, and avoid this bias, which I was talking about, the influence of the environment, and the influence that uh, sometimes you do it in the early log, log phase and sometimes in the late one then our experiments will be more relevant and it will be easy even for us themselves to reproduce our earlier experiments mm -hmm. and build on them. Well, with that, that brings us to the end of our webinar. So thank you again, Victoria, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, TCAN. And finally, Thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the webinar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinar's page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There, you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you on BiteSizeBio. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at TCAN and BiteSizeBio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.